Welcome to Karen Commons, a biblically-minded podcast highlighting the people, conversations, and ethos of Karen University. I'm Nate Womble, Vice President for Alumni and Community Affairs at Karen University here in Langhorne, Pennsylvania, just outside the city of Philadelphia. When we relaunched the Karen 10 podcast earlier last year, I mentioned that you'd be hearing some different voices as hosts. Well, I am really excited to let you know that we're kicking that off today with one of our new hosts, Dr. Keith Plummer. Dr. Plummer is the Dean of the School of Divinity here at Karen, and in today's podcast, you will hear his discussion with Dr. Felicia Wusong. Dr. Wusong is a professor at Westmont College and is also the author of the recent book, Restless Devices, Recovering Personhood, Presence, and Place in the Digital Age. Now, let me ask you to head over to iTunes, if you would, and subscribe to Karen Commons, if you have not already. And I'd also ask you to leave us a review there. This helps us to get the word out about Karen Commons. And after you hear the conversation today between Dr. Plummer and Dr. Wusong, I bet you're going to want to share it with someone anyway. So thanks for letting us be a part of your day and enjoy this Karen Commons conversation. I'm Keith Plummer. Dean of the School of Divinity here at Cairn, and I am pleased to have the opportunity to be joined by Dr. Felicia Wu Song. Dr. Song is a cultural sociologist of media and digital technologies, currently serving as professor of sociology at Westmont College in Santa Barbara. She's the author of numerous publications, including Restless Devices, Recovering Personhood, Presence, and Place in the Digital Age, recently published by InterVarsity Press, And it is that book that I invited her to talk with me about today. Felicia, welcome. And thank you so much for making time to talk about that. Yeah, for sure. Thanks so much for the invitation. Well, I remember when I saw the the coming attraction for your book in the InterVarsity Press catalog, and I was just so excited. And I am very interested in the areas of media technology. And I think as you relate in the book, that this is an area where Christians really need to become much more conversant as it relates to discipleship. And I want to get into that, but I'm curious in terms of what is it that led you at first to want to look into the impact of technology on society? And then we'll get into what led to the, the book. Sure. So there's a story. Um, the story is that right after college, um, I was a history teacher at a private school. Um, I had majored in history, um, and, um, I was living at this private school in the dorms. And during that year, it was the first year that email came to town to all the students. I know I'm dating myself right there. (laughs) Um, so, um, email came, all the students were given email accounts, Um, And it was an interesting experience because our private school, like many private schools, um, talked a lot about community and relationships, um, valued that um, as a part of their identity. And what struck me even in my short time working there was that there was no conversation at all when email came about how it was going to impact the community. And as a teacher and as someone who was uh, living in the dorms, you know, I saw it slowly changing the ways that the young women at the school were engaging each other um, and and even their teachers. And 
um, it just struck me as very odd. <laughs> um, and then it got me thinking, oh, wait, you know, but we don't even have conversations like this in the, in the broader American society. Right. Um, and that's what started me down this road of thinking about um, what it is about media and technology that in American society, we don't talk a whole lot about. Um, and then after um, that experience, um, I kind of came across Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death, yes. um, where he discusses the impact of television um, and, and particularly focusing not on the content, the programming, but on the medium, right, right. as he puts it. And and so that was just a revelation to me that there were scholars out there that were actually studying. You know, I, I had not studied anything remotely <laughs> close to media um, in my college years. So I was so excited and I knew I needed to go back to grad school um, to learn from all of these scholars um, and thinkers that had been um, really spending their lives already thinking about the social and cultural effects of technology on our lives. Yeah, Postman has been an influence on me as well. I'm mm. uh, very appreciative of, of his work. Now, what what were some of the things that led you to think about restless devices? What gave rise to tackling that in a in a book? So some of it was um, motivated from having experiences of uh, being able to talk to different church communities or university communities and always appreciating the questions that come at the end of mm. a talk or a workshop and, and listening to people's experiences and their stories and finding that whether they are young or old, um, that a lot of people just felt really frustrated um, and even um, stuck. I would use that word stuck with the the role of technology in their lives, you know, whether mm. it was in their family or in their work lives, whatever it was, there was always this sense of frustration. Um, and um, I've been teaching a course for several years called Internet and Society. Um, and it's been interesting watching the students through the years shift as well, um, in the sense that early on when I started teaching the class, there was it would take me 16 weeks to convince the students that maybe there was something to be critical about <laughs> with mm -hmm. digital technology. Um, but that through the years, especially in the last five years, I would say um, students are right there with me from the yes. beginning. Um, they're right there. And there's a lot of questions about, well, well what are we, what can we actually do? And so um, I've just always appreciated what sociology can offer um, sociology was a new discipline to me when I started graduate school. Mm -hmm. um, and so I felt like it's the discipline that has these diagnostic tools and categories for thinking that are super helpful mm -hmm. for understanding the digital experience that so many of us have. Um, but wanting so much to pair that with a theologically informed prescription, um, or at least um, imagining together about yes. what it could be like for people in the church um, and wanting to bring that conversation um, into the church, into um, Christian um, educational contexts, families, um, mm -hmm. different groups of people who I know are talking about this and puzzling through, well, what are we, what are we doing? Not what are we going to do, but what are we doing? Yes. Um, and, and how, do we navigate what feels increasingly like an unsustainable set of circumstances? There were so many passages in, in your uh, writing that 
in, in some I just wrote in the margin, yes. Uh, you just <laughs> you described things in my own life. And it was just, I felt so understood and that you articulated so well what was going on. You describe us as a, a culture that is beginning to experience an acute form of technological disenchantment. And you've touched on this a little bit already, but could you first say a few words about the enchantment hmm. that we have gone through hmm. technologically and delve a little bit more into the disenchantment? You know, the enchantment, I think there's so many different layers of that. Um, certainly for many of us, when we get our first smartphone or we get that new device, whatever it is, I mean, it just, it feels magical, right? <laughs> I mean, it really does for so it many does. of us, right? It, 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 it seems to make life so much easier. You can coordinate. There's all these like cool bells and whistles. And so we all want to figure out how to, how to integrate it into our lives, right? It's just exciting. And it's always so sleek and, and you know, appealing. Um, so I think on a personal level, many of us experience that with new devices. Mm -hmm. I think culturally, there's always been, I mean, what's been interesting to me is that in American society, we've been a society that has has a kind of historical enchantment with technology. That is, we we tend towards um, optimistic, even utopian yeah. view of what technologies can offer to us. And so um, the internet is just one of a whole string of media and communication technologies that have come along with many promises, right? Mm -hmm. Promises of, of um, uniting people, right? Across space and time of, of increasing harmony when people mm. can just speak anonymously to each other, right? And so there's all these this wild, exciting promises that are part of the enchantment. And certainly I think part of a lot of the discourse in the, in the first, um, you know, 10, 15 years of, of the internet, um, all the way up through Arab Spring, um, and then the excitement of how the internet can empower marginalized voices, you know, mm -hmm. the, you know, empowering the Davids against the Goliaths of yes. the, the state, the, the um, traditional institutions and so forth. But I think there's been a turn, right? There's, there's a turn um, in people's experiences where, um, you know, the, the underbelly of a lot of these digital practices and technologies, they were always there. It's not like suddenly something happened or something somehow soured, right? They were always there, but that we just needed the time in some ways to live into the degree of enmeshment of the yeah. technologies in our lives for it to manifest in a way that all of us could start seeing, mm. right? And so again, I think there's the individual experience of, okay, now I have all these fabulous devices, but I feel like they're constantly um, driving me now. That is with notifications, with alerts, with email demands, right? And I can't escape it. What used to be efficient and it's now inescapable on an individual level. And then culturally, you know, I think anyone who's been watching what's been going on over the last couple of years knows, right, deep inside of their very being of, of just how um, our devices have contributed in large part to 
a lot of the duress we feel as a society, right? The mm-hmm. differences that we have, the polarization, the, the kinds of discourse that we engage in, but that's all somehow connected to what's going on on social media um, and the degrees to which people feel like, um, you know, they can express themselves in harsher ways than mm-hmm. they would if they were in person with each other. You said that it used to be the case that you would, it would take like 16 weeks to persuade your students that <laughs> there there is something that needs to uh, change. And uh, I, I teach a class called Technology and Christian Discipleship. Mm. And for the most part, I don't have to persuade them either. There's always a few holdouts. But, um, you know, I listened to some of the reflections that students did after a, something um, not as well developed as your Freedom Project, which I, I want to talk about at some point in our conversation, but where they either switched from one medium that they don't normally use, um, or they switched from a medium that they normally use to one that they don't normally use, or they fasted from a particular mm. platform or, or device. And there were times when I listened to the very profound reflections that they offered in response to that. And there, I was on the verge of tears in response to some of them. And you, you give a number of uh, responses from some of your students. And there was one that I just wanted to read a portion of, maybe have you comment on. One of your students said, after taking some time away, when I'm with friends walking around on campus or by myself doing nothing, I feel my phone crying out to me. It begs for my attention. It tells me to check my Twitter, Snapchat, and Instagram. Your friends have sent you a video or posted a new photo that you need to see. You have emails you need to look at. It tells me it will save me from awkward conversations and social situations I do not feel like dealing with. I now see that without restrictions and limits, my phone will always be telling me what to do. That is profound and moving. Yeah. And, and, you know, and it, it's always the case for, I think many of us teachers that um, those kinds of reflections um, surprise us um, even more when they come from students we didn't expect it from. (laughs) Um, And this was certainly the case. And, and I think it is the, the, the quality of demand Mm -hmm. that, that students feel from their devices that I think are enmeshed with the kinds of um, demands they may feel within their relationships with each other that make the compulsive habits of checking one's phones uh, hard to resist. And yet um, what I appreciate about this student's remarks is is their own self-awareness about how um, the technology gives them an escape from mm-hmm. a, a degree of awkwardness or discomfort that that they feel and being upset about that right knowing that that's that's not a great uh habit to have um but not knowing what to do yeah and that that's that sense of feeling trapped that you mentioned earlier to some mm-hmm. degree in the book you do an excellent job of diagnosis. The first part of the book, you deal with our digital compulsions and some of the factors that contribute to them and the the impact that it is having on us individually and 
communally. And then the second part, you you deal with uh, what you call a, a diagnosis um, or prescription from diagnosis to prescription. Reading the the research that you did with respect to the diagnosis was fascinating and and frightening in in some respects. One of the things that you deal with, though, in that section is you talk about the impact of particularly social media, and you use a phrase, you talk about how it industrializes Mm -hmm. us and our relationships. And that was a very, uh, a very interesting section, and there's so much to it, but could you say a few words about what you mean by that and how it is that our interactions in those platforms industrialize us? That's a term that I use from, from the sort of sociology closet, shall we say, um, in that um, industrialization is, is a huge part of how sociologists see um, the ways that societies have changed. Mm. Um, and one um, thesis that often comes up in the discipline of sociology is the degree to which the industrialization that we're familiar with in factories and in the um, in businesses and manufacturing, right, mm. um, is a, there's a dynamic of valuing efficiency, of valuing profit, of uh, um, that that um, moves beyond the factory and moves into other spheres of society um, and starts to drive them as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I talk about the industrialization that happens to us in social media, the idea is that um, the relationships that we have with each other, the construction of identity that we're encouraged to build in those spaces are framed within a context that is um, commercial, that is driven by um, priorities and dynamics of efficiency. Um, And therefore, um, and this is a common sociological thesis, dehumanizing, right? That there is something intrinsically problematic when we see our relationships or, or treat our relationships um, between human beings as transactions, for example, right? Um, or that we treat our identity, um, this fullness of our human personhood, right, as a brand, right? Mm-hmm. As an image, right? It, it flattens it yes. um, in a particular way. So that's that's sort of the the kind of most obvious way in which our relationships and our identities become industrialized in social media. I think what's interesting about social media is the way that our relationships and our construction of our identities, you know, through our posts, the pictures that we we um, offer up, um, those actually are a part of a commercial <laughs> industry for the tech companies, right? Yes. Like we are actually creating, we are the widgets, right, yes. um, that they are uh, building a business model on. And, and so I just find that so fascinating and troubling all at the same time. Yes. Um, um, and, and wanting folks to just 
think about what that means. You know, it's not to say that we just abandon social media, but just to become a little more aware of, of how it does. It it is a context that bounds us in certain ways. It bounds the way we we relate to each other and it bounds the way we, we can even express our identities. You write as users, we are the ones who bear the cost. The substance of our time and our lives are the treasures being mined, and we are just giving it away without a care or thought. We absorb the cost not just by handing over the precious details, revealing what we value and what motivates us, but by opening ourselves and our perceptions of the world to be modified and adjusted by actors and agents who have an interest in steering us in a direction that benefits them, not us. And and the things that you're getting at there are some of the things that almost to some extent we don't want to know. (laughs) Yes. Terrible. Yes. Yes. Yeah. But we need to know. And and you do a very good job of bringing those things to our attention so that we can act with greater discernment. The pushback that I'm sure you're familiar with and that has been very prominent in Christian circles is technology is a neutral tool. What matters most is how we use it. And as long as we're not using it for immoral ends, we don't have anything to worry about. And you, you have a lot to say about that. And you also have Uh, a good deal to say about how it is that American Protestantism has tended to cling to that view of the the neutral instrument. Mm -hmm. What is wrong with that way of thinking about technology? I think that perspective tends to focus, uh, for one, only on the content Mm-hmm. of what is being um, expressed through a, through a technology, a media technology usually. Um, and so focusing therefore on, um, you know, the, the positive beneficial content that can go through the channels of social media or television or whatever it might be. Um, where when you only focus on content, you actually lose track of the fact that there is also the medium or the environment or the ecology that the technology forms around us, um, Mm. that, that we are communicating to each other or expressing ourselves within a a bounded space, right. Mm -hmm. That shapes us. Um, and so we, we can easily lose track of the ways in which we are actually being formed Mm. when we are using the technology without, without knowing it. And so in that sense, being a good sociologist that I am, um, I think um, the view that technology is merely a tool forgets that technology is a part of society. It is Mm. actually an artifact of society. And therefore, as an artifact, like any other artifact, is embedded with values and visions of what the good life is or what being human should be or is. 
um, embedded by its producers, by its designers, by the corporations that um, promote them, um, and that all of us as users are also filled with um, either known, well, known and unknown values that we have mm -hmm. um, about the technologies, right? And so, for example, right, most of us might just merely think about the the positive content that we might put on social media that has good ends because it's um, enhancing people's lives in, in mm. good ways. Um, but we might not be as aware of the ways in which our use of technology is also tapping into our cultural um, enthusiasm for productivity, for example, mm. right? That mm. there are other sorts of cultural assumptions, right, that are at work every yeah. time we use our technologies. What I really, really enjoyed about the second part of your book is you're taking the diagnosis. And, and at one point you said that a lot of scholars are thinking that really the problem with technology is that we're just creating things that are requiring us to adapt at a pace that we can't. That, that, that the problem really is that we're just creating things that are revved up to speeds that we can't catch up to. And you had um, an observation that I thought was very, very um, on target. You said, I wonder if the central problem isn't so much a matter of how we can't evolve fast enough to adapt to the new demands of our economy and technological world, but an ill-defined or misguided sense of what is essential to human well-being and personhood. And the second part of your book, you are really thinking Christianly about what does optimal human functioning look like? What is the good life? And how do the how do the stories about what it means to be human that are mediated through our various devices, how do those conflict. Could you say more about that? Because I, I think that is just so helpful. So I think if we accumulate the different kinds of digital habits that we have and bring together all the expectations that might exist um, when we are on social media or um, trying to get through our email inbox, the picture of the human being Right. Um, and, the, and the context that we're dealing with um, is often one of scarcity, mm. right? One in which we don't have enough time. Um, we're fighting each other for attention. Um, we're competing, right? Um, and that we need others to constantly be affirming us mm -hmm. um, for us to have our value, have our sense of dignity. Um, and we have to constantly be working at it, right? 24-7, you can't miss anything. You've got to know what's going on um, around you, and you've got to stay in the game. Otherwise, you are left behind and obsolete, right? It is a, it is a very demanding um, picture of what it it's means exhausting. to be a human being. Yeah. Whereas I think, and this is why I get excited about thinking about the Christian heritage and, and the resources that we have is that it's a very different picture of what it means to be human and the kinds of circumstances 
we are invited to live into, right? Uh, I think Christianity in the end of the day is a religious faith of abundance, mm. right? Um, of, of grace that says, even when it looks like there is nothing, <laughs> there is always enough for mm. everyone. Um, and our sense of identity um, comes not from the, the whim of public opinion and and what our friends might think, but is grounded in our relationship and our understanding of God's love for us um, and the kinds of relational fulfillment that we all seek, which is very natural as human beings, is one in which um, is first and foremost fulfilled in our relationships with God mm. um, and then with each other through that. Um, and also, um, you know, as to the kind of exhaustion, kind of opposed to the exhaustion that we are we are prone to in our in our digital landscape, um, Christianity is one in which is a faith in which there is um, a call to rest um, and to be actually right that our our worth does not come from our doings. Yeah. Um, but it comes from being and 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 being even allowed and gifted with with rest and communion and delight, right? That God wants to give to us as his dear children. And so yeah. I think it's it's just such a contrasting, full and um robust picture mm-hmm. of what it can be. Um, to be a human being um, in the light of Christ. That is something that, you know, has always been there. It's always Mm -hmm. been there. Um, We just need to um, place it next to the the technological situation that we have right now to see it anew, right? To see it for what it it means to be in our given context now. Yeah. You draw upon some of the work of... uh... James K.A. Smith and his mm. idea of cultural liturgies and the, the practices, mm. the, the rituals of culture that we are engaged in often unthinkingly that are somehow shaping us. And uh, it made me think in, in one of his talks at uh, Wheaton College, he, he said a line that really struck me. He said, you may not even be aware of all the ways your heart is being taught to sing the songs of Babylon. <laughs> rather than the songs of Zion. Yeah. And and good. as I as I was reading what you were saying about the vision of mm. of what it means to be human that is mediated through our practices digitally mm. uh, and what it is that the biblical vision mm. consists of that that came to my mind frequently. Mm. Part of that that vision part of that uh, the stories that are digitally communicated is what freedom means. Mm. And you had some very insightful um, observations there. Could you speak to that some, and then maybe that would be a good segue into what the Freedom Project is mm-hmm. that you incorporate in uh, to your classes, and that is at least partially woven through your book for the reader to incorporate? When it comes to our digital technologies, I think we are often 
um, encouraged to think of freedom in terms of permission or license to be freed from certain mm. things, freed from time, uh, the, the, the limits of time, the limits of space, freed from space, freed from our bodies, mm-hmm. even um, freed from various kinds of limitations. Um, and, and that our technologies will, will grant us freedom that way. Um, and, and while I think there is truth to, to, uh, many of, uh, those, those promises, uh, the kinds of freedom, I would, I would argue that it's a kind, it's a quality of freedom that, that isn't necessarily as, as fulfilling, um, as we think it will be. Mm-hmm. And that there are other kinds of freedom that we're actually looking for, um, that we are we we actually want to be free to be, not freed from, but free, free towards, right? Free to be fully ourselves, for example, mm-hmm. right? Um, fully who we are, um, not just the the successful happy parts that we can post on Instagram, but also our weak and flawed parts, um, and still be welcomed into communion with others, right? Um, and we also seek to be freed to live into the kinds of lives so many of us actually want to live into, right? We 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 want to live full lives that have healthy relationships have um, robust experiences. Um, and, and now uh, so many of us have uh, are, find ourselves living lives um, in which um, so many of the digital demands seem to um, prevent us from, from living those kinds of lives, right? Just enjoying uh, that cup of tea or or that conversation with a friend on the porch, right? It always feels like there's something else that needs to be done. Um, and so the Freedom Project is one that um, I, I think of as one that frees us to begin living into the lives that we actually want to be living, not the ones that we've kind of slipped into living um, because of uh, the various demands um, that are mediated through our technologies. And so it's a set of experiments. And I I always like to emphasize that, that it's not um, like a 30-day plan, a (laughs) five-step solution. I mean, there are different stages and steps in it. There is a sequence, but it's not meant to solve. It is actually meant to be a set of experiments that we try on and we observe after we've tried them to see what happens. Mm -hmm. Um, And and we, and I encourage uh, folks to reflect on what we discover. And so the experiments vary from taking a digital fast for 24 hours to trying different sorts of um, experiments of, of becoming more aware of how we use our devices mm-hmm. to actually changing some of the routines that we have. And again, it's just um, meant to help us actually gather more data and, and increase our awareness of, of what's happening in our routines, um, but also to um, maybe ignite our appetite 
for mm. something that we forgot or maybe even never tasted. Yeah. Right. Um, and so I think so many of us forget uh, how amazing it can be when we actually sit in a room with a bunch of our great friends and we have a good time, right? Our mm-hmm. lives are so busy and we, and we have that time with them and they're like, man, we should do this more often, right? We all say that, right? <laughs> and then we don't do it for like That's six right. months, right? And so the, the, the Freedom Project is in large part trying to give, um, encourage folks to try different things, to maybe have little experiences like that. Hey, that was really great. Mm-hmm. Maybe I can try that again. Yeah. You know, the book came out before the the big announcement from uh, Mark Zuckerberg re- related <laughs> to the the metaverse. But reading it after that, and thinking particularly about this idea of how freedom is conceived of, mm-hmm. um, you know, <laughs> I think about some of the, the the ecstatic utterances that were made in terms of the hope of the metaverse. And you really do get a sense from some of the comments that were made that it is the ideal existence would be a freedom from the limits Mm -hmm. of our embodiment. Mm -hmm. And that somehow this was going to provide us, and here's the irony, is going to provide us a greater opportunity to connect with one another. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm still trying to figure that out. Yeah. You know, writing the book was, um, you know, I had to constantly think about the fact that by the time the book got published, there'd be a new technology (laughs) and the book would be obsolete. Right. Um, And so in writing the book, one of the things I, I really wanted to pay attention to was thinking about, well, what can I say in this book? that's going to stand the test of time and all the different new technologies that are going to come Mm -hmm. inevitably. Right. And so in some ways, even though I focus on social media, because that seemed to be like the dominant modality for so many people, um, I think the focus on reflecting and becoming more self-aware on, well, what do we, what do we think being human actually is, is, is the right way to go. Right, because then it, it doesn't matter what the new technology is, mm-hmm. right? That that understanding of well, what it means to be human is going to be stable, yes. um, to which we measure then the the new technologies. And part of being human is being social. And what what I appreciated about your approach is you are acknowledging that there is a place for individual discipline, self control. Mm-hmm. But you also say that in order to counter the, the, the trends, mm-hmm. we need to do so corporately. Mm-hmm. Could you uh, say something uh, about that? Well, that I definitely need to credit Jamie Smith's work. Mm-hmm. Um, even though I'm a sociologist, <laughs> um, that reading Jamie Smith's work was super helpful especially when he talks about how liturgy is the work of the people. Mm. It just made so much sense to me. I was like, yes, this, this is totally right. And, and when we, we can understand that within the context of our church communities, but then when we apply it to thinking about our digital practices, it also really makes sense, right? It's like, if we weren't all on social media together, none of us would be there, right? <laughs> uh, right? It's, it's, it's a collective act that makes right. it work. Right. Um, and so then if we want to to moderate our use or 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 change it, um, it 
it it makes sense that um, I can't do it alone mm-hmm. in a way that is sustainable, right? Um, that is going to make the kind of impact that I, I would long for. And so I think that's where church communities become super important um, right. for talking about these matters. Um, and if not church communities, then families or smaller groups, right? Um, or organiz- work organizations that, that we may find ourselves in. But I think there are certain kinds of expectations and norms, right? Mm-hmm. That we, we share with others that would need to shift, right? Mm. For us to really start moving substantively in a direction um, that is more, I would say, friendly um, Mm -hmm. to being human. I did want to spend some time talking about that. I, I venture to guess that we have a number of people who are involved in church leadership in some capacity who will listen to this, pastors and others. What kinds of things would you recommend to church communities to begin, even in small steps, to try to implement some of the working against, resisting the the, the cultural forces, the norms, the things that are just kind of taken for granted with respect to uh, technological usage? What kind of things would you offer by way of recommendation and encouragement for for churches? I think one of the things that that first comes to mind um, that might just be a helpful handhold um, for folks thinking about this to begin thinking about these digital matters in the same way that we think about other issues related to discipleship. Mm. Right. Um, discipleship is what a lot of churches already know right. and, and talk about and teach on and preach and, and share in their life together. Um, I think it is very often we we kind of set technology kind of over there, like it's separate somehow, this mm-hmm. other issue, when I think it's actually completely bound up, right? Um, in in as as you were saying earlier, um, in in teaching us, training us into a story or a song, right? Mm-hmm. That is not the song of of Zion, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and so whatever existing resources and ways of thinking about discipleship we already have, I think there there could be a really interesting exercise, right? To think about well, how does this apply to our digital lives, right? Yeah. Um, and and in bringing people along in their spiritual formation. Um, I think specifically, there might be practices for a church community to reconsider that have to do with embodiment and time. You know, I think of these two as kind of rich areas for mm-hmm. communities to think about, right? And so embodiment, I think, is a really interesting one now. Uh, oh, we've yeah. been in through a pandemic. <laughs> We're still kind of in it. A lot of churches have had to do, you know, virtual church and so forth and 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 are happy many places to be together again. Mm-hmm. But I think that it raises very interesting questions about, well, what it does, does it mean that we can be together? Hopefully we all appreciate that more <laughs> mm-hmm. than we used to, right? But what what are we doing together? that we can't do through YouTube. 
Um, and that's a question many of my students, you know, my younger students ask, you know, they're like, why can't I just listen to a podcast or watch a YouTube? Like, why do I need to go to my local church? Yeah. Right. And that's a legitimate question, you know, mm-hmm. for many of us um, thinking about, well, what is it in our church life together that that really leans into the presence of each other right? Yeah. Um, and makes that truly a gift? Um, yeah. and, and how can we be more intentional about that? Mm-hmm. Um, and then when it comes to time, as an organization, I think many of us slip into the 24-7-ness of mm-hmm. our digital lives. And so I think there's an interesting question for church communities um, to ask themselves about, well, what kind of time do we want to live into? Mm-hmm. Um, what kind of time do we want our people in our community to live into. Um, and also for those who are working in the church, who are employees, right? Mm-hmm. What kind of work culture um, are we expecting of each other, right? And can we build certain boundaries, right, to protect people's times um, in ways that the technology isn't naturally going to do? In the past, you'd have to, you, you'd go home and there'd be answering machines and so forth. <laughs> now it's like, we all have these beepers, basically, we're all first responders all the time, <laughs> right? Um, and we're all very tired because of it. Yes. Um, and so I, I know it's the case certainly for so many clergy um, and staff members that it, that the digital just makes the, their work lives, it, it really never stops now, right? Yes. And so needing to put in the measures in your in the work expectations and culture, I think is is not only kind of a generic sort of best practices, but I think it's truly Christian, right? (laughs) Um, Truly respecting the the humanness, right, of of the people that are serving us. Well, I want to let people who are listening know that your final uh, chapter is the church's counter liturgy. Mm-hmm. And uh, you've got a number of uh, extended ideas there that could be implemented, including a list of commitments to ordered digital life that mm-hmm. Christians might, you know, agree to together to practice. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that that is very, very helpful. I would love to talk to you forever <laughs> about these things. I feel like I, I knew going into this, I'm only going to scratch the surface, <laughs> but I am so grateful that you put in the time that you did to produce this, because I think it has great, great potential for much profit Mm -hmm. to the church in terms of thinking about what you said, how do we disciple one another to faithfully follow Christ amidst this new environment that we're in? And I also want to say thank you to the folks at IVP who are making available uh, some complimentary copies of your book to be uh, used in a a giveaway for social media. I hope that's not too out of sorts, a social media promotion. (laughs) (laughs) Complicated um, world. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, Felicia, thank you so much for, for your time today. And again, the name of the book is Restless Devices, Recovering Personhood, Presence, and Place in the Digital Age, published by by IVP. Thank you again. Thank you so much, Keith. It's been great. 